Thank you so much, Anselette. Well, church, uh, I have a question for you to begin with. Did you know that uh, we weren't always known as Christians? So the early church, uh, they didn't actually make up the name Christian for themselves. They didn't actually call themselves Christians. That name, that label was given to us by people from outside of the church. We see, actually, the first time they were called Christians in Acts chapter 11. Uh, It says that the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, scholars believe there was probably a bit of a put-down, like a label, like these little Christs, these little messiahs that they were calling this Christian community. But notice how the Christians thought of themselves. When Luke wrote that, he said, the disciples were first called Christians. They thought of themselves as disciples, as followers of Jesus. Now, the disadvantage of the name Christian, although I do use it myself still, um, is that it's not exactly clear what it means. So if someone says they're a Christian in America, it could mean that they just vote a particular way. If someone says they're a Christian in many parts of the world, it could mean that they simply have a heritage and a background in Christianity, but they don't actually have any personal faith themselves. And there are some who call themselves Christian who would say, I personally believe in Jesus and that he rose from the dead and that he's my king. But that's the problem with the word Christian. It's a little unclear about what it means. Whereas the word follower or disciple is very clear. A follower is someone who follows. A disciple is someone who follows and learns from their master. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, this title of the sermon today is called Following Jesus. And our passage, Matthew 4, verses 12 to 25, is going to teach us about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. So keep your Bible open there, because I'm not going to be rereading the verses for us this morning. And if I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, let me just introduce myself. I'm Ben. I'm the community pastor here. It's wonderful to be here with you on Justice Sunday. And we're actually just finishing landing a series called Tempted and Tried. Uh, We've been doing this series for the last few weeks. Two weeks ago, Pastor Adam started by preaching on Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3. Last week, Nathaniel um, preached on Jesus' temptation in the wilderness And now I'm completing the series by preaching the last section of Matthew chapter 4. Now, why is it important for us to think about following Jesus and what it means to become a disciple? Well, we're going to see as we open this up that Matthew, who wrote this gospel, he makes some incredible claims about who Jesus is and some incredible claims about the kingdom that Jesus brought through his ministry And I think you're going to want to be a part of that kingdom. You're going to want to know, how do I get in on those blessings? And as we ask, how do I enter that kingdom? We're actually also asking, how do I become a disciple of Jesus? It's the same thing. Entering the kingdom is the same as becoming a disciple of Jesus. And so that means if you're here this morning or if you're online with us this morning and you don't yet follow Jesus, this is super relevant to you. Because you're going to get to understand a little bit more about what it involves if you want to start to follow Jesus and be a part of his kingdom and what he's doing in this world. And if you're already a follower of Jesus, this is a great chance for you to take stock and really ask, am I living as a disciple? Am I really living as a follower of Jesus? So we're going to open up the passage together, and these verses split nicely into three sections. I know I say three points a lot, but it actually does. Read it for yourself. There's actually three sections here. And I'm going to give us the three sections straight up, but kids, I've got some bad news for you. The three sections aren't the three points 
of the sermon. So it's not going to be as easy for you this week to figure out what you need to write on your sermon sheets for that lolly. Uh, so you're going to pay, have to pay a little extra attention to find out what the big idea is in each section. But I'm not actually that mean, uh, so I'm going to put up this slide each time the big idea comes up. Uh, oh, whoops. Didn't know how that got there. It's not like Nathaniel um, pranked me for year after year after year while he was on staff, and this is his last Sunday with us, and it's my last chance to prank him. Uh, well, actually, the big idea slide is this one that's coming up. So, kids, when you see this, uh, this is something I really want you to pay attention to when we talk about that, okay? All right, so let's jump in. Uh, the passage splits nicely into three sections. By the way, I used that photo of Nathaniel at every membership course to introduce who he was <laughs> to people. So, um, yeah, good fun, good fun. Uh, so, yeah, we'll, we'll have a look at the passage. It splits into three sections, as you can see there. We're going to look at the identity of King Jesus, the call of King Jesus, and the work of King Jesus. Okay, so first, the identity of King Jesus. So as we look at verse 12, it says, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. So we can put a map on the screen. This is a map of first century Israel. And towards the top there, you can see Galilee and that big blue lake right next to it. That's the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus moved to in these verses. And it's just kind of interesting that he does that because if you're just about to begin this new ministry among Jews as a great Jewish teacher, you would have thought that he'd go down south to Judea where Jerusalem was which is the religious capital where all the greatest rabbis and teachers were and the chief priests were and the temple was. But Jesus goes all the way up north past Samaria to Galilee. Galilee wasn't kosher. It wasn't a very you know, purely Jewish place. There were a lot of Gentiles there, meaning non-Jews, pagans, people who didn't believe in the God of Israel. Hundreds of years earlier, the people who inhabited this area, the Jews that were there, they'd been um, taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire, and eventually it was was resettled by um, their pagan neighbors, and then eventually Jews had resettled there. So there were Jews there nowadays, but it was full of non-Jews, Gentiles as well, and it wasn't really kosher, it wasn't really like a, um, a place that the Jewish people thought highly of. So it's kind of interesting that Jesus starts his ministry there. And one of the reasons that he does that, Matthew tells us directly, is to fulfill a promise in the book of Isaiah. This promise was written 700 years before Jesus, and he quotes from chapter 9 when he says in Matthew 4, "'Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light.'" Has dawned. So what does this tell us about the identity of Jesus? Matthew says that Jesus moves into the Galilean area, and then he quotes from Isaiah 9 and says that this light will come and dawn on the people in Galilee. Matthew is saying that Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light that these people living in spiritual darkness needed in their life. That's incredible. But Matthew is making even more of a claim than that. When he quotes from Isaiah 9, he wants us to think about the whole passage. And I'm just going to read to you a couple more verses from Isaiah 9 to give you a sense of what Matthew is saying about Jesus. He says this, it says this in Isaiah 9 verse 6. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. So Matthew's saying that Jesus is this son, this child. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isn't that incredible? Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is this son, this promised king from the line of David who would inherit the promises given to David. He would set up an eternal kingdom and his kingdom would be fully just, fully righteous. It would be a place where no one is mistreated. And that this, this king is more than just a mere mortal or man. He is called everlasting father. He is called mighty God, prince of peace, wonderful counselor. Do you see what Matthew is saying about Jesus? Kids, here's the big ideas in this, in this section. Matthew is saying about Jesus that he is the light. Jesus is the light. And Jesus is a divine king. He's more than just a man. He's a God king. He's a divine king. Jesus is the light and Jesus is a divine king, the one promised in the Old Testament. This is what we learn about when we look at the identity of King Jesus. And after Jesus' identity is established, Matthew shows us what Jesus' message is in verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. See, the king of heaven is starting his ministry and he's bringing the rule of God in his ministry and he's saying, repent and enter. But the question is, what does it look like to repent? What does it look like to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Matthew gives us an example of this in the next section, in the call of King Jesus. So in verses 18 to 22, we're introduced to four different fishermen. So Jesus walks along the Sea of Galilee, and it was a common fishing area for the Jewish people. And so he sees uh, two brothers, Andrew and Peter, fishing. And he calls out to them. He says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. And they obey him. They leave behind their nets, their boat, and they, they immediately come and follow Jesus. And then he walks a little bit further. And he sees uh, James and John with their father Zebedee, and they're mending their nets. And he says the same thing. He calls out to them, and immediately they obey Jesus. They leave their father, they leave their boat, they leave their nets, they leave their career, and they follow Jesus. They obey him. Now, that's a pretty incredible story, but why has Matthew put this here? Well, he wants to show us what following Jesus looks like. He wants to show us what it looks like to repent and enter the kingdom of heaven. Specifically, he's teaching us how we become a follower of Jesus and what it costs to follow Jesus. Now, we're going to answer those questions in just a moment, but before we can really appreciate what's going on here, we just need to understand a bit more about the first century context, what discipleship looked like in first century Israel with, these, with Jewish men and their rabbis and so on. Rabbi is just another word for teacher. So what would happen is in that time, Jewish boys would be enrolled in Torah school, So Torah is a Jewish word that just refers to the first five books of the Bible. So they'd go to Torah school, and they'd learn about these 
books of the Bible back to front, and by the age of 10, those who did okay but they weren't showing a lot of promise would be told to go back home to their families and to, to get a trade, to learn their father's business and whatnot. But those who did show a lot of promise would be invited to continue studying the rest of the Old Testament. And after they'd finished their training at the age of 17, these young men that were trained, they would go and find a rabbi that they respected, that they wanted to follow, and they'd go and sit at that rabbi's feet. And that was a way of requesting, hey, I want to be your follower. Let me learn from you. Teach me. And that rabbi would put them through a series of tests to see what their potential was and whether they would let them become their disciple. And if they succeeded, then they would call them to follow them and be their disciple. Okay, so that's how things normally worked back then. So if we look at our story again, we notice a few things in our passage, don't we? First of all, it seems kind of back to front because these fishermen don't go up to Jesus and ask him to be their rabbi or their teacher. Jesus chooses them. He asks them straight away to follow him. And notice the fact that they're fishermen. What does that mean? Well, when they got to the age of 10, they weren't the promising ones. They didn't get invited to come back and learn more of the Old Testament. Or at least if they did, they failed to get a rabbi. They weren't good enough. People passed over them. People didn't think that they had potential to be religious disciples. You see, what Jesus was doing here, he's choosing the B team. He's choosing the people that the other rabbis have overlooked. And the wonderful thing about Christianity is that it's not about your potential. It's not about what you can bring to the table or how bad you've been or how good you think you are. It's not about your potential. You're a follower of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, it's because he chose you. He didn't choose you because you impressed him. He chose you because he loves you. And because he will give you what you need to follow him and to obey him and to take up his call on your life. All of our confidence as Jesus' disciples is meant to be in him who chose us, who knows what he's dealing with. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our flaws. And he will give us what we need to obey him and walk with him. Jesus said in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, you might be thinking, great, that's really helpful, Ben. Uh, So I'll become a follower by Jesus choosing me. How do I know when that's happened? And uh, to help explain that, what I've been just talking about now, I'm talking about really the, the divine side of things. That in the final analysis, if you pull back the curtain of reality, God gets all the credit if you're following Jesus. He's the one who chose you first. It's his grace in your life if you're following him. But from a human perspective, we are responsible for our actions and our decisions. So Peter and Andrew, when Jesus called them, they didn't just sort of sit in the boat and passively wait for God to work in their life and you know, wait for him to move them. They chose to follow Jesus. They chose to obey. They left their boat behind. They got out and they followed. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, please know this morning that the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom is open to you, that you are invited, that Jesus is saying to you, come, follow me, and you are responsible for what you do with that call. Will you follow him? Will you take up that call? And for you, it might just be as simple as just praying a simple prayer to him and saying, Jesus, I don't want to be the Lord of my own life and the captain of my own ship, but I want to follow you. You be my master. Show me what it looks like to live with you and to enjoy life under you. 
That might be something that God is calling you to do today. In the call of King Jesus, we learn about how we become a follower of Jesus. But we also learn about the cost of following Jesus. You see, when Jesus called these fishermen, they all obeyed immediately. They left behind careers, valuable equipment. Two of the brothers even left behind their father in the boat. You see, for all of us, following Jesus will cost us something. Following Jesus will cost us something. For you, it might be your career. Maybe God is calling you to leave your normal occupation and go and study at a Bible college and train to go and work in vocational ministry somewhere. Maybe it's to be a pastor. We have a shortage of pastors in our denomination, and we need more godly, qualified, trained men to pastor churches. That may be something he's calling you to do. But for many of us, it might just be not taking shortcuts in your career and being honest and walking with integrity, and maybe you don't get noticed as much because of that. It might cost you something in your career. It might cost you something in your relationships. Maybe there's a relationship, there's a person in your life that is trying to lead you away from Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that we want to create holy huddles where we only know other Christians. That's not what I'm saying. But you may know that there's a person in your life that really is trying to lead you astray, and you need to count the cost of that and distance yourself a little bit and lay that down and give that to Jesus and ask him about what you need to do. If you're in school, maybe the cost for you will be standing up for someone who's getting bullied. Or maybe the cost for you will be to to be open about your faith and you'll be labeled as that Christian girl or that Christian boy and you'll get teased about it. It costs us something to follow Jesus. So kids, the big idea here is that we become a follower of Jesus because Jesus chose us. But we are responsible to obey and it will cost us something. We become a follower of Jesus because Jesus chose us. It's a gracious thing. It's, his, it's a gift. But we're responsible to obey, and it will cost us something. This is what we learn in the call of King Jesus. As Peter, Andrew, James, and John became disciples of their new rabbi, they left things behind, they began to follow him, and they had front row seats to the work of King Jesus. This is our final section, the work of King Jesus. Now, in these verses, what we see Jesus doing is he goes around and he starts preaching about the good news of the kingdom, and he performs all these miracles. He's healing all these people that are coming to him for help. And this, this passage isn't about Jesus preaching about the kingdom and doing some nice miracles on the side, but this whole section is about the kingdom. So Jesus is preaching about the kingdom, the good news of God's kingdom, that he is God's king, bringing God's rule to bear in our world. It's breaking in, even though it's not fully here. And then when he does the miracles and stuff, he's actually giving us a preview into what God's kingdom is like. You see, when Jesus returns and his kingdom finally covers this world and the new creation, it will be a place where there are no more sick, where there are no more broken, where there are no more oppressed people. And so he preaches about the kingdom and he demonstrates the coming reality of the kingdom by healing and helping people and having compassion on people and delivering people who are oppressed. That's one of the reasons why he's doing these miracles. The other reason is simply because his heart is compassionate. There are thousands of people coming out to see him, bringing their sick, bringing people with needs, bringing people that were oppressed. I don't know about you, but I would find that absolutely overwhelming if thousands and thousands of people are flocking to me, asking for me to help them personally. 
but you never see Jesus get angry or frustrated or impatient. He is compassionate. He is drawn to need. He has time for people that are in need. This is part of what we see here as we look at the work of King Jesus. And if we want to be disciples of Jesus, we want to have the kind of heart that he has, we want to do the kind of work that he cares about. That means we want, to, we want people to hear about God's kingdom and to share the gospel with them. And we want to give them a taste of God's perfect kingdom through the way we treat them and the way we treat one another. This means more than justice, but it certainly includes justice. Remember Isaiah 9 verse 7, I quoted it before, it talked about Jesus. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. On Justice Sunday, we want to stop and ask whether we're treating each other justly as people who belong to Jesus' kingdom. And we want to ask whether we're giving outsiders a taste of Jesus' kingdom through the way that we treat them, through the way that we care for and help those who don't have money or power or an ability to help themselves. So let me just ask you this morning, is justice part of your life? Does justice feature in your walk with Jesus in some way? I can think of persecuted Christians around the world, places like North Korea, Afghanistan. Do, do you have a heart for them? Do you pray for them? What about financially? Are you giving away money to the poor and the oppressed in our world, trying to help relieve them from poverty? Are you caring for the person who gets bullied at school, even if it makes you less cool? Is justice a part of your life and your walk with Jesus? See, here's the big idea. We follow a king who brings good news to dark places and cares for people in pain. We follow a king who brings good news to dark places and cares for people in pain. If we're following this king, won't our lives resemble his priorities in some way? Won't we want to tell people how they can enter God's kingdom by telling them the gospel? Won't we want to show people how wonderful it is to live under our gracious and generous king by loving them and helping them without asking for anything in return? Because that's what we receive from Jesus. He died for us before we even loved him. He gave to us before we had anything that we could give to him. Now, maybe you're listening to this and you're like, Ben, yes, like, it's all, you're, you're correct, it's, it's a kind thing to do, but have you heard of inflation? Um, it's kind of hard to give money away right now, like, because he lives, cost of, interest, uh, cost of living. Um, it's a bit of a tough call right now to give money away to people in need, Ben, maybe in a couple of years. Or, or maybe you said, Ben, did you go to school? Were you homeschooled, mate? Because, like, when, I was, when I'm there, it's pretty difficult to... Oh, sorry, David, he, he was homeschooled, but... I was homeschooled for a couple of years as well, so we're all good. We're in the same boat. But, um, you know, it's hard. It's hard to stick out like a sore thumb and to be someone that's like known as a Christian and to stop bullying in a school. Well, can I suggest to you that if you're not willing to make a sacrifice and to pay the cost for following Jesus, it's not because you care too much about your money or about your own comfort or about your reputation. It's because you don't care enough about Jesus it's because you don't see the value and the worth of Jesus 
enough. You see, he is the great king. He's not asking us we might potentially consider you know, counting the cost of following him if it's okay, possibly. He is the king, and he just commanded these guys in these boats, and they immediately obeyed and followed him. And they saw something that was worth it in Jesus. Matthew wants us to see this in this passage. He is the light that spiritual, dark, spiritual darkness needs, that people living in spiritual darkness need. He is the divine king. He is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace that our world longs for and needs. And he is inviting us in. And we are gaining infinitely more by joining him and following him than we could possibly give away. If we aren't willing to make sacrifices, not because we value our money or whatever else too much, it's because we don't see the infinite value of Jesus. See, if you call yourself a Christian, that's not just a label. That means you are a disciple. You're a follower. You belong to a master. His name is Jesus. Your job, my job, is to listen to his words, to get to know Jesus, and to become more like him as we follow him. We have the privilege of being part of his kingdom. And that means we want to do the things that our king cares about. And that certainly includes justice. So let's embrace that call together as God's people. Let me pray. Jesus, we just thank you for who you are and that we even have access to your ears right now, that you listen to us. You are the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Let your light shine in our hearts afresh this morning. Help us to see your infinite value and worth that you're not just a wise person or a kind person, but you are the divine king. Jesus, we want to thank you that you have given so much to us. You've chosen us by grace. You gave your life for us at the cross. We thank you for this. And we pray, Lord, help us to realize just how rich we are in you, just how blessed we are in you. Fill up our hearts. Open our eyes to your beauty and worth so that following you and, and paying the cost of following you does not feel like a burden, but it feels like a joy to invest in what you are doing in this world. Show each of us, Lord, personally, what you want us to do from today. Show us, guide us for your glory, Jesus, and for the continuing work of your kingdom. In this world, we pray. Amen.